This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Friday, the former rugby star who could be a force in the Senate. And the second leaders debate is this Sunday. So how do the candidates prepare? You'll hear from one of the best debate coaches in the business. Your goal is to have your candidate leave the stage on the night of the debate and say to you, I heard nothing on that stage that I hadn't already heard from you. We begin today with federal politics. The Deputy Prime Minister has lashed back at his former colleague, Malcolm Turnbull, accusing him of working to make Australia less secure by promoting so-called teal independence. Mr Turnbull insists he's not urging people to vote for the independents, but he won't say whether he'll vote for the Liberal candidate in his former seat. Our reporter David Lipson joins me now. David, is this becoming a, a bit of a headache for the Prime Minister? Yeah, I think that's right. It is. There's a few things to this. Firstly, the timing right before the election. The fact that Mr Turnbull made these comments in Washington DC on the other side of the world doesn't matter so much Obviously, it's all over the press immediately in modern politics. The other thing is the laser-guided sort of targeting of this. He's specifically looking at the precise moderate Liberal voters who are already turning or thinking of turning to the Teal Independents. And the thing about them is they are Malcolm Turnbull's people. They listen to him and instead of saying, look, keep the moderate Liberals inside the Liberal tent, uh, maintain a broad church. He's saying the church already has fewer pews. The moderate voices are diminishing and you can thwart the extreme elements of the Liberal Party by voting independent, even though he insists he's not telling anyone how to vote. He's also not telling us, as you said, how he's going to vote. Here he was. Whether you want to vote for them or not, I'm not encouraging people to vote for anyone. I'm encouraging people to vote. That's the only thing mm. I'll do. But the Prime Minister, though, uh, but, says voting for an independent is a recipe for chaos and instability. Do you yeah. agree with that? Well, no, I do not. And look, the big parties, uh, whether it's Labor or Liberal, are hardly in a position, credibly, to say that they represent the best chance for stability. I mean, just, you know, cast your mind back through the last decade of political history in Australia. And that's the third point. He's highlighting the chaos of the last decade of politics with the coalition in charge and digging up some old feuds as well. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, wasn't willing to bite, though. Here's what he said. I've always treated former Prime Ministers of both political suasions with the utmost of dignity and respect, and I'll continue to do that. But I don't share his view. What my view is, I've just explained to you, and that is the chaos of a parliament driven by the daily musings of independents who haven't had the experience to deal with the serious security and economic challenges our country faces. That is going to hurt people's incomes. It's going to hurt people's jobs. It's going to damage Australian security. Uh, That's the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, there. And David Anthony Albanese has faced another press conference with the travelling media pack. How has he fared today? Yeah, better today, I think. I mean, as I said to you yesterday, I didn't think the blow up over not knowing the six points of the NDIS, uh, the six point plan of the NDIS, I should say, was as serious as not knowing the unemployment rate or the cash rate. But the government um, and the Murdoch press, it has to be said, are going very hard on this, saying it proves that Anthony Albanese is just not up to the task. He's not across the detail and that that's just not good enough for an aspiring prime. Prime Minister. And look, it, I mean, I guess it, it, it still wasn't handled yesterday as well as it could be uh, by sort of being sneakily handed the document and then reading from it. Today, Anthony Albanese was much more commanding, 
I thought, with the press pack uh, amid you know ongoing an ongoing barrage of questions. Uh, here's how it went. Let me tell you what the NDIS is about. It's not about gotcha questions. What it's about Ooh. is providing what what. Hang on, you 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 had you had your opportunity, you had your opportunity, and now it's my turn to answer. So just wait. What leadership is about is determining when there is a problem, identifying it, and then coming up with solutions. Anthony Albanese there. I just want to mention two significant comments from the Labor leader. First, he's dropped the policy to offer superannuation on paid parental leave for Commonwealth government jobs. That was something they took to the last election and campaigned a good deal on. Second, he said he supports a royal commission into the coronavirus pandemic, even though the party hasn't yet announced a formal position on this. David, thank you. That's our reporter, David Lipson, there. One of Australia's most high-profile sports stars could play a major role in the next parliament as he threatens to make history and unseat a government minister for a Senate seat. Indications of support for one of the candidates, former Wallabies captain David Pocock, could could make him the ACT's first senator from outside a major party. Isabel Rowe reports. David Pocock played 78 games as flanker for the Wallabies. He was nicknamed Bam Bam. And later on in his career, he became almost as well known for his environmental activism as his sporting abilities. And this election, he's transferred the momentum off the pitch and into politics, running for a Senate seat in the ACT. We're certainly building momentum. I've really enjoyed getting out and talking to Canberrans. We've now got got over 1,900 volunteers. The former Wallabies captain has lived in Canberra for a decade, making headlines in 2014 when he was arrested for chaining himself to a digger to protest land clearing for a coal mine. But his platform isn't limited to environmental issues. People are sick of the constant uh, allegations and reports of pork barrelling, of misuse of taxpayer money, cost of living and housing affordability. People are frustrated around climate, the lack of the lack of action. Another issue here in, in Canberra is territory rights. We, we don't have the um, ability to debate and legislate on issues like voluntary assisted dying. We've had a senator who's argued against the territory having the right to do that. And this is something that has broad support across um, the ACT. The ACT has two Senate spots and Canberrans have always elected one Labor and one Liberal senator. And if polling is to be taken into account, incumbent Liberal Senator Zed Seselja is under threat. Well, I don't have any doubt that um, it's a it's a challenging uh, fight and um, we always understand that it's a marginal Senate seat. Why do you say it's a tough fight? What is it that's changed? Is it the high profile of independence this election? Uh, well, I think there's no doubt that when you've got um, the Labor Party, uh, Greens, green independence and very well funded by Climate 200. Um, Of course, that's a significant challenge. David Pocock is not the only high-profile candidate seeking election in the Bush capital. Law professor Kim Rubenstein is running primarily on a platform of returning integrity to Parliament. She's got David Pocock as number two on her How to Vote card. 
the crossbench is going to be key for the balance of power and having someone like me totally committed and having been teaching for the last 25 years issues around integrity and government accountability is going to be key for Canberrans having that direct voice but also for the nation in moving forward in a liberal democratic way. The Greens are running First Nations woman Dr Tanara Goreng-Goreng who argues those interested in climate action should vote for her party, not an independent. Independents will have difficulty in a balance of power situation, whereas the Greens as a party has has got a good decade of, of work in the past 30 years of climate action, but it's 10 years of government in the ACT where we've been able to work with governments and negotiate these very difficult things. Um, so I think the difference is, in fact, that we have this very detailed and costed policy. The Greens and the Independents are directing their preferences to each other. This could be a big problem for the Liberals. ABC election analyst Dr Anthony Green says it is Liberal Senator Zed Sezelja's seat under most threat from an Independent. The ACT Senate race comes down to one thing. What's the level of support for the Liberal Party? What will happen, though, and what the talk about is in the ACT, is if the Liberal vote drops significantly below 33%, say to 25%, then there is the chance that someone else can win the the second seat instead of the Liberal Party. All of the lower house seats are safe for Labor and there's very little attention paid to it. Most experts don't believe Labor Senator Katie Gallagher's seat is at risk, although she's not playing down the threat. My own view from campaigning on the ground and talking with people is... Um, that it's a race between all of us. Um, you know, no one, no one of us should expect uh, just to automatically be elected. It's a tight race and we're going to have to campaign hard right up until election day. That's Katie Gallagher, Labor Senator for the ACT, and that report from Isabel Rowe. This Sunday, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese will take part in their second formal debate of the campaign. Televised political debates first hit the headlines in the United States in 1960 when John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon faced off. The contests have become a cornerstone of political campaigns ever since. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. I have seen what's happened in this last four years when, in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. Governor Romney says he's got a five-point plan. Governor Romney doesn't have a five-point plan. He has a one-point plan. Uh, But what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust Fund. Radical left. Will you shut up, man? Who is on your list, Joe? So how do candidates prepare for political debates? Robert Barnett is a Washington, D.C. lawyer who has worked on 10 presidential campaigns. His clients have included Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Mr Barnett often plays the opponent in practice debates so candidates can get ready for the real thing. If you're doing a 90-minute debate, you don't start with 90-minute practices. You do 20 minutes usually. You video them. You watch them. You discuss them. Then you do it again. And eventually, in the days before the debate, you move to full 90-minute debates at the actual time of the debate. So your body clock is attuned to the, the rhythms of the particular hour that it might be. And you try your best to get your candidate ready on the substance and on the process. 
often you're stepping in and playing the role of the opponent. How much preparation do you have to do to be playing the other person? Well, I prepare myself as if I were the candidate. I write a complete briefing book of all the positions that the candidate has taken on the major issues. And I then try to internalize that and do my best uh, not to imitate, but rather to replicate using the attacks that the opposition uses. And your goal is to have your candidate leave the stage on the night of the debate and say to you, I heard nothing on that stage that I hadn't already heard from you. Do you sometimes get under the skin of your candidates when you're playing the opponent a bit too well? (laughs) Very much so. When I prepared Geraldine Ferraro, who was the first woman on a national ticket in 1984, I played Bush 41. And whenever I would do some stinging thing, she would literally walk over and slug me on the arm. (laughs) So I left the debate prep with a black and blue right arm. So it became a contact sport in 1984. (laughs) Yeah, you do try to get under their skin and rattle them and do everything you can to be sure they hold their temper. Of the candidates that you've worked with, who's the best debater that you've seen? Not a chance do I get into that. (laughs) They all have their strengths and they all have their weaknesses. And, you know, I've worked with some masters in the art of debate from Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton to Bill Clinton, and the list goes on and on. So I wouldn't pretend to answer who's the best. We try to play to the strengths and find a way to prevail. How do you think that uh, political debates have changed in the United States since those very early days of of Nixon and Kennedy? Well, they've become very rehearsed. They've become uh, one-liners, quotable quotes and sound bites, and they're less of a discussion and more of a performance. There's no way around that, really, uh, because there's so much at stake that people are going to want to be ready for and show their best performance. But I wish that they were a little more spontaneous, but they have developed into much more performance art than real actual debate. What sort of impact do you think social media has had on the way that debates are seen and framed? Yeah, well, when you're doing a debate, you sort of have three audiences. First, you have the people in the hall. They know who they're going to vote for, and they applaud one and boo the other and vice versa. Uh, The second audience is made up of the people who watch the debate, uh, 80, 90 million people. But the third and largest and most important audience is the audience that doesn't watch the debate, but watches the reporting on the debate, the sound bites on cable, the columns in the print media, the bloggers, the podcasters. And so you have to gear your debate for all three audiences. And social media is a big part of that third audience. That's Robert Barnett, partner with law firm Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C., and a debate prep specialist. You're listening to The World Today. The transition away from fossil fuels in Australia's regional economy appears to be well underway if the spate of recently announced coal-fired power station closures is anything to go by. While the changes are unnerving some, a new report suggests that regional communities could be in pole position to capitalise on the shift to clean industries. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. At her farm in central Queensland, cattle grazier Melanie Shannon has seen plenty of changes. 
but she wouldn't have it any other way. It's a really beautiful spot um, and, yeah, we, we enjoy what we do and we work together as a family. We are seeing some, you know, certainly different climate patterns and extended temperatures and extended heat waves, but we're certainly building the resilience in the land through um, our grazing methods. So we are essentially capturing every raindrop of, of water. Across regional Australia, change is a hot button topic as the economy shifts away from fossil fuels and towards renewable industries. The Next Economy, a non-profit group, has today released a report suggesting regional areas could be major beneficiaries of the transition. But it warns the opportunity will only last for a short time and depend on Australia's ability to build new industries before revenue from older polluting ones falls away. It's a time of change. People want to hold on to what they've got as long as they can. The danger with that, though, is we we miss the time and the opportunity to build the industries that are going to replace that export revenue. We can't just do that overnight. We've got to start now while we still have fossil fuels. But, you know, denying that it's going to change is just going to make that all the harder. Amanda Carl is the chief executive of The Next Economy, which spoke to more than 500 people across regional Australia, including coal-rich areas, as part of the report. She says a major theme that emerged was the pace of change sweeping across the regions, where plans to close coal-fired power stations have been fast-tracked. What we've found is that there's been a big shift in the conversation nationally about the energy transition. So people have kind of gone from not really wanting to talk about it to now being quite concerned that things are happening really quickly and they want to know what they can do about it. It's a message that's being taken seriously in Gladstone, the heartland of Queensland's industrial economy. Khan Goodluck is the acting mayor of the Gladstone Regional Council. There's definitely some, you know, anxious people around how is it going to work and that and that's something that not everyone has all the answers to. People care about their livelihoods. They want to make sure that they've got a job to provide for their family. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, But I think also they want to know that there is a plan that governments, you know, local, state and federal are looking to make sure that we can look beyond the next election cycle and look to 20, 30, 40 and 50 years down the track so that we can be a successful region. Amid uncertainty about the best ways for heavy industry to decarbonise, he's agnostic about how the tasks should be achieved. But he's optimistic solutions can be found, pointing to the investments being made by companies in the area, including mining giant Rio Tinto. It's certainly a risk. Let's put it that way. It's a risk to industry, but it's also an opportunity. And if you look at Rio Tinto, you know, Rio Tinto is not talking about abandoning Gladstone and, and closing down their operations here in Gladstone. They're talking about investing in their industry and making sure that they have a roadmap to carbon neutrality. On the farm in central Queensland, Melanie Shannon can understand people being afraid of change, but she says with change comes opportunity. We embrace change. Uh, we're very open to trying new things. Um, you know, we certainly have come a long way within our business. I think it's just about, you know, taking a really open approach to it. That's cattle grazier Melanie Shannon ending that report from our energy reporter, Daniel Mercer. Well, let's stay with energy now. And a growing number of community-based energy projects are leading the fight against rising power bills. WA has just turned on its first virtual power plant this week, fuelled by a network of rooftop solar and household appliances instead of fossil fuels. 
many communities see the projects as a viable alternative to a national energy grid hooked on coal and gas. John Daly reports. In Perth's southern suburbs, hundreds of rooftop solar panels and household appliances are helping to power the state's first virtual power plant. When you look at the community of Harrisdale from above, you can see all the different energy resources the area has. It's a pilot called Project Symphony, and its goal is to provide community-based energy that could help lower power bills and keep the electricity grid stable. Andrew Blaver is the project manager. You talk about decentralisation, we talk about uh, decarbonisation, but the other D word coming into this is pretty much the democratisation of energy. A virtual power plant is software. The cloud-based system groups the power from a community's network of rooftop solar panels, for instance, and either supplies the grid during peak demand or stores away energy in batteries when the grid's overloaded. You know, we could have a system low and we could have uh, significant reliability issues. What Symphony is doing is looking at how we can better manage and better harness renewable energy at different times of the day. On the East Coast, wholesale power costs jumped 141% in the first quarter of this year compared to the same time last year because of soaring prices for coal and gas. In the Queensland border community of Gundawindi, the council's working with a private company to build a green hydrogen power plant at its wastewater treatment facility to replace the region's reliance on gas-fired electricity. The mayor is Lawrence Springborg. Uh, if we want people to genuinely start taking on hydrogen and seeing it as a legitimate alternative fuel source, then we have to make it available. It has to be competitive, and, and that's not something that I think we've been able to um, effectively do as a nation. ANU energy economist Paul Burke says community energy initiatives are on the rise. A long way to go, and we have a potential right now to be moving past 30%, past 40%, past 50% of renewables on our national electricity grid. This election, there's, there's no commitment in terms or target in terms of renewable generation from either of the two main parties. The renewable energy target is still sitting at just above 20%, which was reached in 2020, and neither the Coalition nor Labor have said they'll raise it. Labor has promised to upgrade the electricity grid to fix energy transmission issues caused by renewables and will install 400 community batteries, while the Coalition is also promising more transmission infrastructure and funding for small-scale renewable microgrids in remote communities. That's John Daly reporting. Finally today, the Reserve Bank has warned that inflation will remain persistently higher for the next few years as fallout from uncertainties in Ukraine and China continue to rock the global economy. That's prompted the RBA to dramatically review its inflation forecasts as central banks around the world raise interest rates to tame the runaway cost of living. Our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan, is at the Reserve Bank Sydney headquarters. We spoke a short time ago. Peter, good afternoon. How radically has the inflation outlook changed given the geopolitical fallout, especially from the Ukraine war? Well, good afternoon, Sally. The Reserve Bank has just released its quarterly statement on monetary policy. As we know, just a few days ago, the RBA delivered a bigger-than-expected cash rate rise of a quarter of a percentage point to 0.35%, effectively conceding it was behind the curve in taming a shock annual inflation reality check of 5.1% with more rate rises to come. Now, back in February, well before the Ukraine war and wider lockdowns in China, the RBA saw inflation 
coming down to 2% to the bottom of the RBA's 2 to 3% target band. But now the RBA sees inflation peaking at 6% and still high at 4.3% in June next year. As we saw on Tuesday with that rate rise, so much has rapidly changed locally and globally that earlier forecasts in some ways are superseded and out the window as history is updated with energy, food and building supply costs really up across the board. And Peter, inflation is the buzzword at the moment, but there is some good news in other parts of the economy. Yes, Sally, uh, the RBA expects to see strong economic growth of 4.2% in December and 3.1% next year. That's a little less than forecast in the budget. Um, expected to moderate, though, as emergency support is withdrawn. The official jobless rate is also expected to fall to 3.6% by June next year. That's a little faster than the budget forecast, but pretty key to what we're hearing in the election campaign about economic management. But there's optimistic news from the RBA that wages are at last growing, and that was a key factor in Tuesday's rate rise. Um, Wages up to 3.7% by 2024 and every cent of that additional money will be needed for higher inflation and rising mortgage repayments. That's our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan outside the Reserve Bank Sydney headquarters and that's all from the World Today team for this week. Thank you for being with us. The program's producer is Mike Edwards, associate producer is David Sparks and technical production from Anna John. We'll be back again at the same time on Monday. I'm Sally Sara. Enjoy your weekend. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. While in Australia we're now learning to live with COVID, that's not the case in China, where cities like Shanghai have endured strict and at times bizarre lockdowns. Today, my colleague, East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels, on why the Chinese government could stick to its zero COVID policy for years to come. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.